Shalom. Welcome to the Christchurch Jerusalem Bible Study, where we wrestle with God's Word. For more information on the church, to listen to sermons, to contact us, or to make a gift, visit ChristChurchJerusalem.org. Brothers and sisters, uh, friends who are joining us online, welcome to Christchurch Jerusalem for our evening Bible study. We are, well, we're almost halfway through Leviticus. We're still in chapter 16 as we're trying to get to the, the guts and the meat and all of the meaning that there is in, um, in this day of atonement or day of atonements uh, so that we can take uh, the richness of what God can, can give us and put it into practice. And uh, we acknowledge that the Holy Spirit is present. He's here with me. He's here with you. We believe in an omnipresent uh, divine friend and king. So the same God who's with me in my house and my family resides with you. And that binds us together in a very special way. We acknowledge his presence. We acknowledge his authority. The way we do it is, is through prayer. And so um, our, uh, our Reverend Deacon Neville will, uh, will, will lead us in prayer. Brother, can you pray us in? Yes, let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time set aside to come to your word, Lord, to come into your presence. And we pray, Lord, that you will meet us uh, in our need and honor us by your presence. Father, we pray that your spirit would guide our understanding and inspire Aaron as he, as he explains the things that he has understood and the things that, especially that you have revealed to him through your word. Father, thank you for one another. Thank you for the insights we can bring to each other. And Lord, we pray that you may receive the glory and that we may be built up in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thank you, brother. Okay, as is our tradition, uh, summary from last week. Now, last week's discussion um, was quite actually quite broad, even though technically we only got through uh, five verses, but the summary is attached online, and here I will read it out. A review of Leviticus 16, verses 11 to 14. Moses had acted as priest for one week, demonstrating to Aaron and his sons how to serve appropriately in the presence of God. We see that in Leviticus 8 and 9. On the eighth day, Aaron had assumed his role as the high priest. He now receives instructions on how to enter the Holy of Holies to meet with the Lord. The Torah is unclear if Moses was also allowed into the Holy of Holies. He had been in the presence of the Lord on Sinai for 120 days. Thus, he was not a stranger to the glory of God, nor to the voice of God, as Numbers 7, verse 89, describes how Moses would hear the voice of the Lord from the cloud above the Ark of the Covenant without describing the location of Moses. Was he too before the Ark, or was he outside the parochet, the separation curtain? It's unclear. But regardless of the access that Moses has, Aaron does not have the same access. Aaron may only proceed beyond the curtain one day a year and only in a certain fashion. When Aaron enters the tabernacle, he's not actually truly alone. He brings with him the generational history of his own house with all its blessings, victories, 
and its faults. The Lord declares in Exodus 34, 5 to 7, that the consequences of sin and its taint can be passed down to subsequent generations. Conversely, holiness and righteousness can also affect future generations. As Paul reflects in Romans 11, that the Jewish people remain elect and loved because of the merit of the patriarchs. This should add a weighty responsibility to our own personal devotion and obedience of the Lord. There is much to say, hear what I say, there is much to say for the theology of individualism. That is, that we all have a personal relationship with the living God, and each one of us is sealed with the Holy Spirit. However, biblical theology is one of community. God calls and redeems to himself a holy people, not a bunch of individuals. Jesus teaches us to pray for forgiveness in the plural. Forgive us our sins, not only me. Paul admonishes us not to stop meeting together. And the Didache encourages us to every day seek the company of the saints. Therefore, with this context of community and family history, before proceeding into the curtain, Aaron sacrifices a bull as a sin offering for himself and his household. This is the first atonement on the Day of Atonements. Exodus 30 verse 34 describes a special incense for God's personal use. It's concocted of 11 ingredients. Aaron brings this incense with him on this special day. The incense creates more than a pleasant aroma. It creates a cloud of smoke that obscures the ark. We can be near the presence of the Lord, but it is death to see him with human eyes. As Jesus says in John 1.18, no one has ever seen God. God meets Aaron from his own cloud between the cherubim on the atonement cover. The meeting of man and God is a cooperative endeavor. God brings a cloud. And Aaron brings a cloud. If you think about it, this is an incredible act of love on the part of the Lord, even as the kaporet, the atonement cover, is obscured by the cloud or clouds. In this case, Aaron sprinkles some blood of his personal bull on it before the Lord. God delights to have humans, his creation, participate in the redemptive activity of heaven. During our discussion, we asked the question, if Aaron is behind the curtain only one day a year, then how does the Holy of Holies get clean? What about the built-up dust or the dried blood on the ark? Also, how was the Holy of Holies disassembled and transported and then rebuilt during the wandering of the wilderness? Now, while these questions are interesting to ponder and to discuss, the issue of the text is, how do you And in what manner do you come into the presence of God? Familiarity breeds contempt, as they say. And while God is indeed our friend, he is also a consuming fire. Just ask Nadav and Avihu, the sons of Aaron. And so we continue with our hero, Aaron, inside the Holy of Holies before the Lord, after having made atonement for him and his household. So I'm going to read from verse 15 
Um, for those that are listening on podcast, I'm sure you've heard this, these passages a few times now, but it's good to hear them again. So Leviticus 16, picking it up from verse 15. I'm reading from an ESV for those that would like to know. Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people and will bring its blood inside the veil and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling it over the atonement cover and in front of the atonement cover. Thus he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions and all of their sins. And so he shall do for the tent of meeting which dwells with them in the midst of their uncleanness. No one may be in the tent of meeting from the time he enters to make atonement in the holy place until he comes out and has made atonement for himself and his house and for all the assembly of Israel. And then he shall go out to the altar that is before the Lord and he'll make atonement for it and shall take some of the blood of the bull and some of the blood of the goat and put it on the horns of the altar all around. He shall sprinkle some of the blood on it with his finger seven times, cleanse it, consecrate it from the uncleanness of the people of Israel. And when he has made an end of the atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall present the live goat. And Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all of their transgressions, all of their sins, and he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. The goat shall bear all the iniquities on itself to a remote area, and you shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. And then Aaron shall come into the tent of meeting, and shall take off his linen garments that he put on when he went into the holy place, and he shall leave them there. He shall bathe his body in water in a holy place. He'll put on his garments and come out and offer his burnt offering and the burnt offering of the people and make atonement for himself and for the people. And the fat of the sin offering he shall burn on the altar. And he who lets the goat go to Azazel shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water. And afterward, he, can, he may come into the camp and the bull for the sin offering and the goat for the sin offering, whose blood was brought in to make atonement for the holy place, shall be carried outside the camp. Their skin and their flesh and their dung shall be burned up with fire. And he who burns them shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water. And afterward, he can come into the camp. And it shall be a statue to you forever that in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall afflict yourselves. You shall do no work, either the native or the stranger who sojourns with you, and on this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you. and You shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins. It is a Sabbath of solemn rest to you and you shall afflict yourselves. It is a statute forever. And the priest who is anointed and consecrated as priest in his father's place shall make atonement wearing the holy linen garments. He shall make atonement for the holy sanctuary. He shall make atonement for the tent of meeting and for the altar. He shall make atonement for the priests and all the people of the assembly. This shall be a statute forever for you. That atonement may be made for the people of Israel 
once in the year because of all their sins. And Aaron did as the Lord had commanded Moses. Wow. All right. Now, there's a lot there. I know that every time we read it, there's this new sentence that seems to jump out and, uh, and reveal itself for the first time. And that's one of the joys, I think, continually studying the text. And so as is our tradition, what is something there that you noticed or not noticed before? I'm going to go first this time. One thing I've noticed after reading this again and again and again, there's no prayers. There's no words that say, this is what you'll say. And now Moshe will pray. And now Aaron will pray. And now the people will pray. There's actions, but there's no actual physical. Let's now pray. Let's now sing a psalm. Let's now. It's a, there's a lot of activity. So I, I personally jumped out and went, oh, my gosh, you're right. There's not a lot of praying going on here. We'll get to that. So what do you, okay, uh, what do you want to say, Moti? Um, but if you know that uh, there are a bunch of commentaries about the Yom Kippur and Torah Kohanim, and in those commentaries, they say that they used to say the secret name of God. Correct. Blah, blah, but of course, it's not written. Uh, mm-hmm. And they say that their source is the oral Torah. Correct. So what you have in the literal text is no direct prayer. Correct. What you have in commentary is prayer. Okay, you've got all kinds of, of things, but the actual direct, what you see and in front of you is not uh, a direct set of bread. Uh, Vida or David uh, from England? One thing I, with, with my right, with the, with, the, with the book that I'm reading here, it says instead of atonement, it's, it's using this word reconcile. And it's, I find it interesting that throughout this whole process, like you said, there's, there's no prayer, and yet it's, it's like Lord Jesus on the cross. He died for us, and, and if, we, if we move the word atonement out the way and use the word reconcile, he's reconciled us back to the Lord God. And every Yom Kippur, it seems that even the altar, even the tent, even all these other things have to, it's like they've become separated, separated from the Lord God to be reconciled back to him. Cool. And it's, it's very interesting when Jesus is on the cross, that like the Gospels don't say, and he prayed for everyone. Exactly. Yeah. Right now, he he might have done so, but that's not what the text reflects. Just like the text here doesn't. What we have is we have this atonement being made, and most of the people in Israel, the camp of Israel, aren't even involved and not even potentially paying attention, and certainly couldn't see it. Same in Jerusalem, Yeshua's on a cross. Yeah. He's hanging on a tree. What does the guy living in Silwan know? Exactly. Yeah. No clue. It's the same principle in that while we were yet sinners, Christ, Lord Jesus died for us, right? It's the same principle that the Lord is covering the whole camp of Israel. So. Correct. And I think that's, that's what you see in the theology here. It's, um, you, you, you see from the, that's from the Peshat. Of course, then you've got the, the Drashat, the spiritual. Of course we need to have some prayers because we need to have some, something happening from our side of the table. Uh, what's our response to this, even if we don't know it? So there's some interesting things. Okay, so we've got a hand up there from Kate, Scotland. Very briefly, I noticed in verse 21, um, Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat, confess over it. So he actually confesses over the goat. So he's actually making a confession. He is. 
but he's tying it to the animal and then sending the animal away. Yep. It's not he's not confessing, he's actually removing yep. words. That's the actual um, thing that's so different with Yom Kippur. With all the other sacrifices an animal's brought in, you kill it, you do all kinds of things, there's worship, you get to eat, eat it sometimes, sometimes you don't, bits get given to this, that, and the other. On this occasion, although we have seen this before with live birds, yeah, on this occasion, the live animal takes away the sins of the people. And um, and but but before you before you can take away the sins of the people, you have to atone for a whole bunch of stuff. Got to make you got to make things very very clean, and um, and that sort of theology shows up when uh, John the Baptist sees the Messiah and says, "Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world." Right? Nothing's kept inside Israel; it's all removed, and uh, which is it's very interesting. Okay, so Sharon from Canada. Yeah, it's really cool, you guys, like that. I was just thinking about verse 16, you know, the whole tabernacle is stained by the sin of the guilty people, right? So it reminds me of that verse in Isaiah 50, um, uh, Isaiah 59, verse 2 and 3, but your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. For your hands are stained with blood, your fingers with guilt, your lips have spoken falsely, and your tongue muttered wicked things. It's just a really powerful thought that the sin of... Uh, our sin affects, you know, the equipment even, you know? Yes. Sin is, yeah, sin stains the tabernacle who dwells within the people. Isn't that this incredible act of love? God says, build me a tabernacle because I want to dwell with you. Oh, by the way, I happen to know what's going to go on, and I happen to know it's going to taint even the very thing I'm in. So I'm going to make sure that that gets clean too. And uh, sometimes we often look at it in a sort of more negative way, like, oh, my gosh, we've got to put blood here and we've got to do this. You know, God's already said, no, I'm living with you. I also kind of know what you're like. And I'm holy, but I really want you to be holy. So here's this way that we can actually have a relationship. Um, and when we think about that in our case, we are vessels of the Holy Spirit. Do we not believe that? Yes, we do. do and, um, and yet, who here is perfect? Who here has not done things which we are all so ashamed of? And yet the Holy Spirit goes, I'm living in this really seriously. Um, how do I make this clean? You know, Yeshua's going, well, look, my blood does this. Okay. And, uh, and so we have that same theology that uh, the, the tabernacle of the Lord today still journeys with corruption until we get to one day put on incorruption. And, uh, and then we don't have to do that anymore, which is going to be a very interesting, an interesting world to come. Okay, Neville, you've got a hand raised. Neville from England, who actually resides in Jerusalem. Aaron, you and I were talking a couple of weeks ago about the Christchurch compound. And this is an interesting aspect to bring up. That there's a, maybe another flip side to this idea of places and things getting corrupted through uh, proximity with sinful people. Uh, you were saying that there are often the locals, the, the Jewish folk, come in to the compound and they say something to the effect that, you know, there's a different feel about this place. There's a sense of peace. And they, they, ha they make this observation um, and they can't put their finger on it. But, you know, more than a few have commented this. And 
all I can say is that I think it's down to the fact that there have been faithful people, generation after generation after generation, praying and worshipping in that place. And there is a residue of honour to God. Amen. Yes, that's absolutely true. The, the number of secular Israelis in my time here that has come into the compound and said, why does this place feel so different? Because the very ground is saturated in the prayers and love and worship of the saints. And it has an effect. Now, sometimes it's not magic. That's not mystical or anything like that. But it, it is what you see. What you see in the Bible itself is that things can become corrupted. Conversely, things can become holy and set apart for the Lord. So make your houses holy, people. Saturate them in prayer. Let it spread around the cities. It's possible. So, okay, I've got a bunch of hands raised, but uh, Vida from England. Oh, it's Englishman. And then Teresa from London. Yes, Erin, I was just going to say that what I find fascinating is what Sharon pointed out, especially, again, just on that verse 16, making atonement for the holy place. This place is holy. It's, it's called the holy place. The, the, but because of the sin, because of the dealing with sin continually, even once a year, it becomes tainted. And it just made me think how powerful our Lord Jesus, what he did, Amen. how different his atonement was, because he didn't become tainted. And yet his, his atonement is cleansed us, which is that holy place that he's now dwelling in. So we are being cleansed because of what he did. And I just suddenly thought how amazing that atonement, um, that sacrifice Lord Jesus made for us is and how powerful it is. It's not like this earthly sacrifice and that was done year after year after year. It's just that he, he was untouched by it. Yep, all that theology is, is, is what we see expressed in Hebrews, where yeah, the constant, well, we know what happened, you know, the high priest once a year, again and again and again. Well, we've obviously got a better one. And, uh, and, and the whole idea of, uh, of the high priest doing something that we don't see before we even saw it, and yet it can have an effect on us. Yet, when we get to it, we have to talk about, even though the text doesn't say, what is our responsibility? Okay, Teresa. I just wanted to add to what Neville said, and that is that um, I think you can get that sense of holiness um, and peace when you go into some of the cathedrals and probably other churches too, but I'm talking about over here. I was working in Rochester some years ago now, and um, I was doing consultancy, and when I used to finish the day, I would go into Rochester Cathedral and I used to go up to this little chapel and it was wonderful. It, it, I just loved it. I love that sense of peace. And I felt that in many other churches and other cathedrals. And I put it down to, again, the, the just generations of prayer. And Rochester happens to be go back for all oh, ages back. And it was a pilgrim route as well. So I do think that's really important about buildings, and they aren't all like that. You know, you can go into right. them and you, they just feel empty and nothing there. But in, in some of these other ones, um, yeah, you can feel, I think it's to do with the presence of God being there because there's been so much prayer. Yeah. And conversely, have you all not been in buildings which you know something's wrong? Yes. And you can't put your finger on it? You just know, you go, 
something's what something's not right here. Yeah. Uh, and again, it's that it's that sort of thing too, because it goes both ways. Sin can stain, yes, but holiness can have an effect. So there's that there's that um, obligate added weight of obligation on our obedience and service to the Lord yes. that can affect our families, that can affect our places, that can affect our cities, that can affect our friends. Uh, that has a has a future, and um, all of this is found first in Hebrew Bible. And then later in uh, the New Covenant. Okay, Sharon, and then we will go through uh, the text. Yeah, I was really encouraged, you guys. I received a video actually recently of uh, Canada, some streets in Canada where you look up the street around and it spanned right down the street. And it was a street full of people on their knees praying. And that whole concept of, um, I was just discussing with a friend in a Bible study recently in 2 Thessalonians 2, um, you know, they perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. For this reason, God sends them a powerful delusion so that they will believe the lie and so that all will be condemned who have not believed the truth but have delighted in wickedness. It's the concept that as we delight in God and in, in truth, then we invite his spirit in to fill us and his spirit permeates, like you were saying, like incense, like, like it permeates the world that we live in. And so God has been invited to the Parliament of Canada for the last three weeks and and like, you know, been talked about and preached and told and, you know, shared with the people there. And they're actually seeing people come to Christ and doing baptisms in the, in the, in the, uh, in the, um, uh, what do you call it? The, uh, um, not the apartments, the uh, <laughs> um, hotel rooms and things like that, as it's been like a type of revival there too, on the ground level, but you don't hear it in, in regular media. So the power of God and his spirit, like to counteract kind of the delusion that, that people in their kind of, it's like our minds are depraved or not able to reach God or Samsung and, and I were going talking back and forth in emails, just that how, you know, the spirit of delusion or something is on people. And my friend told me this morning, she said she was talking to people on the street there. And it's like, why are these people saying this about the situation and then seeing all the love and sharing the food with people and being so generous and just giving so much. And, and she's like, why are they saying this negative thing about it when it's so incredibly loving and good and kind? And it's just, it's just like a complete lie. And so she's walking along this guy just to make a long story short, this guy is doing, who's, a, who's one of our representative media, is doing a video of an empty street around the corner from where the party is. And she's walking over the Friday night a week ago to go to the party. And the concept is that he's giving this picture of this lie when the reality is just around the corner. And it's just all so incredible. Like in their own conscience, are they not thinking, oh, this is a lie. I'm very glad to hear that people get a chance to come to the Lord and be baptized in their hotels. Um, I can imagine the weather in Ottawa and with a frozen river. Obviously, people aren't baptizing anybody in the Ottawa River right now. Can you just imagine? So I'll baptize you in the name of Jesus. Oops, I've just smashed this guy into a chunk of ice. Terribly sorry. When he recovers, we'll get some hot water. Um, but it's, it's, it's great. I don't mean to make light of it. But it's great that people are coming are coming to to faith absolutely fantastic all right guys let's have a look at this is it the lie revealing the truth so you know something about the light it always reveals away chases away darkness eventually eventually everything is revealed and in and even even the the deepest darkest of our sins all get revealed in the end anyway we all know that yeah so let's just deal with them now and, and get it done all right guys so verse 15 
Now, context. Moshe has, uh, not Moshe, Aaron has taken care of his personal sin, his household sin, and brought himself and has met with the Lord cloud to cloud, God to man inside the Holy of Holies. Then, verse 15, he shall take the goat of the sin offering. This is the, the, the you've got two goats, yes? So somehow he's got to go back out and, and sacrifice this other goat. That is for the people, so it's got a particular purpose, and bring its blood back inside the veil and do with the blood as you do with the blood of the bull. So a very similar um, uh, process, sprinkling it over the atonement cover, some translations mercy seat for those that would like to see the meaning of that word. I draw you your attention to last week's um, uh, notes. To very extensive uh, discussion on the Hebrew, Greek, German, Latin, English translation of those words. Okay, uh, atonement cover would be the best of translations. Verse sixteen: Thus he shall make atonement for the holy place. What animal's blood is he using? He's using he's using a goat, which is for right. He'll take the goat of the sin offering, which is for the people, and that will make atonement for the holy place. Now, isn't that interesting? Because okay? normally we think, okay, let's get a pure goat, unblemished, not tainted with nothing. Well, this is the blood, holy, holy blood, which will make something holy. Here you have, hang on, we've got a sin offering, uh, which is going to make uh, for for the uh, a holy place, and it gives you the reason because of the uncleanness of the people of Israel. Okay, this this holy structure has been living and residing with uh, an impure people, and uh, there's been this taint, and so there somehow their taint uh, is is put on this goat, and it makes uh, atonement covering for their sins, and he shall do so for the tent of meeting which dwells in the midst of their uncleanness. Very interesting. Okay, so um, David or Vida? Yes, yes, Aaron. While we're on that verse, it says, then he shall kill the goat of sin. Just a question. I'm, I'm curious. When Abraham sacrificed, was going to sacrifice Isaac, was that a goat in the thicket? It was a ram. A ram, okay. Yeah, so goat, goat is Oz. The word in Genesis is um, Ayil. Okay. And the rabbis make a, a distinction between this because the text says, well, Abraham says that God will provide a lamb, but he doesn't, he provides a ram. Sounds, sounds similar, but it's different. And then during the intertestamental period, it would appear that there arose this thought that there is yet to come the lamb of God who will take away the sins of the world. Because although it was promised, it, it was prophesied by Ad, by Abraham, but it didn't didn't happen in that way. So therefore, it's, it was still yet to happen at the time when the, the, the sages came up with this this proposal that there is yet a, the Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world. Amen. Good point. Never. Thank you. And and sometimes there was a question uh, in the chat: you know, Why a goat? You know, why not some sort of other animal? And I really have no idea, other than the text obviously very specific it's the word of the lord and when you come to these nuances like what neville is saying when you see a difference you go hang on we were talking about a goat now we're talking about a, a lamb now we're talking about a ram 
the, the various names have some sort of meaning, particularly when there's a difference. So obviously this goat is going to be different from the live goat in that he died and he atones for the place um, that is in the midst of the people. Now, it's not that God wanted to run away from people's uncleanness. Like he doesn't say, I'll just keep my tent outside the camp. Once you're clean, I'll show up. God lives with unclean people. Sometimes we often want to shun away from unclean people, but the Lord is not scared of uncleanness. That doesn't mean he doesn't like it. It doesn't mean he doesn't want to get rid of it and make it clean, but it doesn't scare him. He's bigger than that. And that's always a nice thing to say, particularly if we've got friends who are suffering in their sin. Why would God love me? Why would God want to be anywhere near me? And you can say God has always wanted to be near you. He has never run away. And your sin is not strong enough to keep him away. Okay? Yes, sin does drive the presence of God outside the camp. That's also true. But at the same time, uncleanness uh, also doesn't scare God and he's bigger than it. So 17, verse 17. No one may be in the tent of meeting from the time he enters to make atonement in the holy place until he comes out and has made atonement for himself and his house and for all the assembly of Israel. Okay, So it's just one guy inside doing all this, which means not even Moshe can see what's going on. No one can. No one actually sees what Aaron is doing. No one knows how he's behaving. No one knows if he's doing it right. Okay? Moshe didn't see it, but he knew it. Correct. Because he told him, this is what you're going to do. So he could imagine it. Yeah. We will see it in verse 34 that he did exactly how Moshe and God had commanded him. Right. But Moshe wasn't there because he wasn't the high priest. Yeah. You could imagine Moses hanging outside, just waiting, waiting, waiting. Aaron comes out. Did you, did you do it? Did you do everything right? Did you do everything like I told you? Oh, my gosh, I've left, I've left my watch inside. What am I going to do? Yeah, it's going to take another year before you get it back, brother. You know, like, Sorry, dude. Um, but uh, no one else goes in. This is a solitary affair, um, which, which, depending on how you read it, could mean, okay, so once, once the Day of Atonement's done, then the cleaners can go in afterwards. Uh, okay, but we're not, not 100% sure what that what actually means. But on this day, it definitely means there's only one. It's just the one high priest doing everything on behalf of the people including Moses. Aaron, sorry, can I just throw a quick thought in there? Yep, go. In verse 29, it's, uh, this is to be a lasting ordinance for you. On the 10th day of the seventh month, you must deny yourselves and not do any work. So in theory, yeah, they're, they're not doing things by obeying, right? Versus doing things, I guess, is it? Like you're denying yourself, sorry, you're denying yourself, and then you're not doing any work. So those are two things that are kind of your responsibility that day, I guess, right? Yes. And Aaron, sorry to interrupt, also, uh, the idea in, in verse 17, and there shall no man be in the, in the tabernacle, is this also, could it also be, is this the process where he went into that holy holies and he made atonement, right? And then when it was complete, the, the, the veil was rent so it could no longer be. That was it once for all. So that he prepared the place that we could actually go in now. Right on, yeah. Right. Yes, at the, the, the idea of... Um, that we don't have to keep doing this anymore. The, the, the atonement's been done. The access to the divine is now, is now all the time, um, which, is the, which is the whole point of Hebrews. 
that the our high priest is obviously better. So because at that time they closed the veil and that was it for the next two for like one year, it was gonna be closed. Yep. And um, yeah. And what's very interesting is most people, most people never ever 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 got to see behind what was behind that veil, ever. And um, just just the one guy that was appointed for this this task. And even then, it was still a mystery to him. It's clouds, it's smoke, it's it's not a normal view. This is a, it's, it's something very different. Okay, Sharon, one more time before we begin. All right. And so that's why, yeah, that's the incredible reality. Like, in other words, we've, we've opened that veil now so that we have direct access to God. And so now God comes into us in the new covenant by his spirit so that he is in within each one of us so that we are the tabernacle, correct? And therefore, Jesus, by his presence, goes with us everywhere we go. We bring Jesus as we surrender to the spirit and allow him to be, you know, completely at work in us. It's just powerful how it comes down to the reality of everyday life here in Canada. Canada in 2020, you know, for example. Excellent. Uh, chat in the chat from Patricia. Um, would there be consequences if he messed up? Good question. The text doesn't say, does it? The text doesn't say, so if you drop the coals, the smoke clears, and you happen to cast your eyes on the living Lord, the following's going to happen. That doesn't say that. It doesn't say, you know, what happens if he goes in, spills the blood, Oh, oh, now what do I do? Quick, got to go back out, back out, you know, offer 10 Hail Marys and uh, try again in 15 minutes. Um, so what do you think, guys? The text is unclear. I'm sure some of you know the oral traditions. What are some of the old traditions, uh, Moti? Any idea? Are we talking about the... Uh, the high priest. What happens if you made a mistake? Well, if you made a mistake, he better not made a mistake because they have to wait for another year. <laughs> Yes, correct, because he cannot go back. That's the problem. He goes there, he does his things, then he comes out, and he even had a rope uh, in his belt, so in case if he passes, passes out, he pulled him back. So the, the, he cannot just go back and say, let me redo it. There's no redoing it. It's over, <laughs> you know? Yeah, and there's, and there's that tradition that um, sometimes the high priest did make a boo-boo. They did a lot, yeah. Yeah, and um, and... They actually had to pull the guy out via the rope. And, yeah, it's like, whoops. Uh, he made it, yeah, and, and you'd have to wait. you have to wait a year, which you, I don't know. What, what would you do? Would you say, okay, everybody, let's, let's not tell anyone. Right? Uh, you know, no one actually saw this. Uh, let's just keep it a secret between ourselves. <laughs> okay. Uh, Shimshon from Nigeria. Yeah, shalom, everyone. Thank you, Aaron. Yes, I'm hitting you from the streets of Abuja because I'm not yet at home. I'm in transit. Um, I think it's very clear in the text what will happen to the priest if something if something goes bad. He's, he's going to die because the text already warned us that if he sees the Lord, if he doesn't go in with the smoke, he's going to die. And he also warned us earlier on that he needs to wash himself so that he do not die. I mean, if he doesn't wash his body, and he appears before God, he will also die. So I think um, the judgment is that, that um, he might die, um, which we don't have any record of any priest dying um, in, um, in, the, in the Torah itself, but in the, we, we have the traditions that um, um, the, the priest can die. And again, when you look at the bells, 
you can understand the reason for the bells around the um, garment of the priest so that um, if it stop making that noise before the Lord, then the people are afraid that, okay, maybe he's dead. You know, they just need to hear this to get their confidence back that things are going right. Yeah. yeah. The uh, priestly garments had these little bells on which make a little jingle and people would have been, uh, priests would have been listening behind the curtain for the sound yeah and just to make sure he was he was still uh alive so but he got an entire year to prepare himself for that day so he better learn some practices at home maybe <laughs> his homework no because after this vaikra uh the parashat was given so the later kohen gadols basically had the torah as a guide and the oral tradition as well so they were luckier than Aaron Hakohen because he was the first one in the front, you know, he was just doing it for the very first time. And then the later Kohen Gadols were very lucky because they got the Torah, the old tradition, some stories from their forefathers, blah, blah. Could you imagine being the replacement Kohen Gadol behind the guy who died on Yom Kippur? <laughs> yeah. Oh, uh, is it that time of the year already? Oh, I didn't realize. Uh, suddenly I'm sick. I can do it. You know, uh, I got Corona. I've got Corona. Yeah. It's like, uh, don't, don't let me go in there. Um, you know, they, they, he could have a, he could have a serious, you know, panic session. Um, it's a, it is a big deal. The holiness of God shouldn't be taken lightly by anybody. Very scary. Very scary. Yeah. I remember Uzzah, when Uzzah touched the ark and died, even David, that was, um, very excited to bring the ark into the city, he became afraid of the Lord that day. That's what the Torah says. He became so afraid. So the holiness is not to be taken lightly. I was thinking the same thought, Samson, that same story came into my mind when I asked that question. I'm like, it's got to be severe. They mess up. They mess up. Yeah. So there's, it's, it's, it's that interesting paradox. It's the blessing of God to have him in your camp. It's God's willingness to live amongst uncleanness, yet require it to become clean. At the same time, his holiness is not something to be disrespected. And so there is a, a, a pattern of this is how you approach me, and uh, this is how I communicate to, uh, to my people, and this is how atonement is done for everyone. That makes me think, if you, the holiness, we're looking at the temple, we're looking at this special day of uh, atonement, but take it today for us as Christians, where we do the breaking of bread. I don't think we treat many Christians, mainly in the Pentecostal side, I would say don't really treat that day with as reverence as perhaps we should do. And then I think of the Catholic people where they really reverence the breaking of the bread. Maybe we see it from my perspective a little bit too much. So, I mean, right. I think that you maybe think of that. Yeah, yeah, I, I, yes, I, correct, I'm with you. I sometimes think they go overboard, but at the same time, I sometimes think perhaps, perhaps I'm also not appreciating what's actually going on. That's what I was just going to say real quick here, and if I can jump in with you guys too, because it's the same concept, like in Hebrews 12, it's really cool to sort of do the, the compare and contrast, right? So the old, 
old covenant, the new covenant, like you have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire to darkness, gloom and storm to a trumpet blast or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them because they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touched the mountain, it must be stoned to death. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. And that's my question I'm going to ask in a second. But the thing is, so is the Old Testament given to sort of understand the holiness of God and this whole law and Leviticus kind of on a global scale, why we're looking at this and reading it and understanding it, but then to bring it to the today, right? But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all to the spirits of righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. So it's like, okay, so explain, you know, it's just so powerful, the new covenant versus the old covenant of right. fear and trembling, you know. Which is the, which is the entire epistle of Hebrews, uh, which is everything, everything's just summed up in the entire epistle of Hebrews of, of what, what great high priest we actually have. Uh, who wants to dwell with his people who happen to be usually in a state of uncleanness. <laughs> but not that we want to stay there. Okay. Uh, can I just add something to what Sharon said? So I went to Kotel with a friend of mine who is a, is a part of the Jewish clergy near Shalim. So we were just discussing and there was this Christian group who kneeled down and prayed. And he told me, oh, Christians. And we started to talk about Christianity and the differences between Judaism and Christianity. And he told me that Mordechai, a man, a living creature, cannot take the sins of an entire nation. And I told him, but a goat can. <laughs> well done. And silent kept, you know. That's right. A man can't, but a goat can. Yeah, four-legged, yeah. <laughs> uh, no, it's a, yeah. The, it, we, we have, by, by now, I think we've often seen so much in Leviticus that just speaks of what one man actually can do. And the anointed one, remember? Uh, in, in Leviticus 5. They deliberately changed the word Kohen Gadol to Kohen HaMashiach, right? He was the anointed one who could take away and perform these things. So there's a lot of that theology there. Good point, Mordecai. Neville. Yeah, I was just going to add that thought about one of the things that helped Aaron, what focused his mind at the beginning of Leviticus 16 was the fact that he had two of his sons, two of his four sons had died because they hadn't, approach the Lord correctly, or they've been presumptuous in what they wanted to do. And so this, I mean, he must have been really, really listening carefully to what his, to what his brother Moses said in his instructions, because he had just seen the consequences of doing something wrong in terms of the procedure before the Lord. Yes. And just for those that are listening um, in, in podcast land, don't think that the just because we have the new covenant that suddenly Jesus is also lovey-dovey friendly and he's not this holy anymore. Because talk to Ananias and Sapphira, okay, where the Holy Spirit who lives in you did something very special to them. And so we have to remember that the, the Lord never changes. So we have to continue both. He's this incredible lover who wants to be with his people, who will meet man. In a, in a special way and live with his creation. At the same time, he turns around and says, I am actually holy. I haven't changed. And, uh, and I, I kind of need to be treated as such. 
and, and we have to have that reverential fear. Um, so, it, yeah, I th also think it takes a little bit of maturity as a believer to begin to wrestle with both of those. Often when we start young, we, we tend to look either as, you know, God's so, so holy and righteous and we're useless or he's such a friend and we, we kind of lose the, the reverence. These are generalizations, of course, but then you, you blend them. You together. can't have one without the other. Absolutely. It's a balance, right? Yeah. So um, uh, verse 17. No one may enter the tent of meeting from the time he enters to make atonement for the holy place until he comes out and made atonement for himself, his house, and for all the assembly of Israel. So the, uh, there are a series of atonements. That's why in Hebrew it's actually called Yom Kippurim. Okay? We call it Yom Kippur even today in the singular. We all do. We can't stop it. Our Bible's translated that way. But in Hebrew it's actually in plural. There's all multiple levels of atonements that are being done then he shall go out to the altar that is before the lord the altars are not these strange pagan inventions uh they have them too but so does uh the lord and uh, and he'll make atonement for it even it is going to get uh atoned for as though it has also somehow become tainted uh in an unclean fashion and taking some of the bull and some of the goats, the altar actually gets two, two drops, okay, both, and put it on the horns uh, all around, and he'll sprinkle it on the blood on his finger seven times, seven uh, magical number for those that have been, um, not magic in terms of bad, but a very mystical number for those that have been uh, studying the Hebrew alphabet on Mondays with Mordecai. Every letter's got a meaning. Every number has uh, uh, more depth to it than just, than just a, a number. And he'll sprinkle it, some of the blood on it with his finger seven times, cleanse it, consecrate it from the uncleanness of Israel, which is interesting. So the guy who's living on the corner of the camp, who doesn't even see what's going on inside the Holy of Holies, somehow his uncleanness has tainted that, which is, you know, interesting. You know, like my sin, what did my sin do? My sin nailed the Messiah to a tree. Well, what has that got to do? You know, how, how can I possibly affect the Messiah? Be interesting. It's all of that theology that's put in. One guy takes away our sins, yet we have the opportunity to be putting our uncleanness on, on objects. So let's all be very careful. Uh, verse 20. And when he has made an end of the atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting and the altar, now, finally, we've cleansed everything. Now we present the live goat. Now this goat uh, is the, exactly the same as the dead one. There's been no difference. We've just cast lots for it. One for Adonai, one for Azazel. Want to know who Azazel is? Two weeks ago, you can have a little uh, discussion on that. Um, and Aaron shall lay both of his hands. Here we get another interesting ceremony and a public confession, right? although the actual words are not listed. Although I think there is a tradition as, as to exactly which words are. Uh, I could probably try and find that for you. That there are, um, I actually think I've got it uh, listed up there, but there's a, I think there's actually like a paragraph of, um, where, of an oral tradition of what they said, he, uh, what a high priest would say. Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the life goat, confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all of their transgressions all of their sins, 
and you shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of the man who is in readiness. Now, there's a, that sentence is packed with theology, okay? Let's unpack it, okay? Let's have a look. So what jumps out at you at that sentence? Okay? Read that sentence very carefully once again. And Aaron shall lay both his hands. Now, remember, as we're reading this, let's think of the people who are not involved, not around, not saying anything, and what words are not used in the text. Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all of their transgressions and all of their sins. He shall put them on the head of the goat and he'll send it away into the wilderness by the hand of the man who is in readiness. Janet from Canada, lovely Vancouver Island. Well, what sticks out to me is the last thing there is this is going to be the only thing um, that will be seen going through the camp, that this goat is coming through, being uh, probably dragged through, I don't know. So this is, this is one part of this incredible day that people see this goat coming out. And, have, and do they know beforehand what that goat represents, that it's carrying all their, their, uh, their iniquities and their transgressions? Okay, that's a good, good, good thought. This is something that actually comes out of the tabernacle. Okay? We don't actually get to see what Aaron's doing, but we get to see this uh, unnamed, unnamed man uh, and the animal, if we happen to be paying attention. Okay? Rocky from uh, Washington State. I think. Yes. Um, I just wanted to know how Aaron's supposed to know all of their transgressions. <laughs> That's a very good question. Yeah. It's, uh, so isn't that interesting? Aaron will confess all of their sins. How? He is part of the assembly, so he knows exactly what's going on in the camp. Okay. But it's interesting. Not For every individual, he doesn't sort of name every individual sin, right? It's not like uh, he says, okay, I'm going to pray for Aaron and his swearing or, uh, you know, Shlomo and his embezzlement and uh, David and his adultery. Do they Um, hand in a list or what? I know. It's like, yeah, I've got this list. It's going to take me a long time, especially when I get up to David because he's really, really struggled here. Um, And he's our king. Well, we have a prayer in the mornings. It's called, uh, you know, and also in the English sometimes, we do and takanun. And we, there, we also confess some sort of sins, like such as we have transgressed, we have robbed, we have slandered, we have willfully sinned, we have done violence, blah, 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 blah. Like there are like 27 sins that we just list there. So maybe he had like some sort of a list that he read. Generic, generic list. Well, so we continue to sin. That's why we have it from the old tradition. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, really good. Yeah, really good, Marty. Um, Andrew from South Africa. Uh, it just reminded me of the opening verse of Leviticus. Um, I was just thinking of the opening verse of Levit- Leviticus where God called, he spoke, he said, and in this verse he mentions their iniquities, their transgressions, and their sins. Perhaps a three way of conveying the same message as... At the start of the book, he used three different forms of speaking, saying, calling. Just a, a thought. Good thought. Okay. I'm going to respond to a few of these comments, but 
I want to group them all together first. So uh, what do we got? Uh, David, Ovida, and then Yvonne. Erin, I just realized that this, all the sins are being laid on this goat, and this goat is actually not atoning, but it's carrying the sin. So this, this sin remains on this goat. And it made me, can I mention a little shadow type I saw, possibly, that when Lord Jesus was being standing before Pontius Pilate, there was Barabbas, which means also Barabbas in Aramaic means the son of Abba, and so the son of the father. So here you've got righteous Lord Jesus and this criminal, and the criminal is let out into the people. Interesting. So, so like a shadow of this event. Interesting. Yeah, the two. Yeah, it's, I haven't thought of that before. The two, the two, uh, the two prisoners as the two goats. Aaron, following on from that, does this also mean with Psalm one hundred three says, "As far as the east is from the west, so far have I cast your sins from you." Amen. Yeah. For sure. Amen. Yeah. This, 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 this. What we're talking about is um this incredible visual image of our sins being taken away, not remaining. Uh, Brazil, Yvonne. Yeah, I was wondering, and maybe this is more um, a question for Madi. Um, and in terms of sin, like it's talked about all throughout Yom Kippur and, um, and the, you know, the whole fasting and all of that. But how is sin perceived like on a daily basis? And, you know, um, it's not, is it not talked about too much? For example, it's the whole Yetzer Hara and Yetzer Hatov and like being able to, um, you know, to dominate or have dominion over that, um, kind of like from Cain and Abel, you know, but do they, and the whole Teshuvah, a lot of that is on Yom Kippur, but on a daily basis, do you have, I mean, do they, would they be, um, I guess, confessing and doing a lot of Teshuvah, like? Yeah, it's called the Vidu. We do it every day. I'm just putting in the chat. You can Google it. That's the prayer we say twice a day. And also before we go, go to bed, before we say the Shema, we say, we, I have forgive those who sinned against me. And so please forgive me, something like that. I can send it to you on WhatsApp in English if you want. So like three times a day, we confess our sins to God. And also once we forgive people before we go back to bed, because we might not come back tomorrow morning. And when, if God gives us our souls back, what we say, we say, Modiani. So, there is it, but you know, since the Ashkenazim say it's super fast, I don't know if they really confess this in order to say it. To say it, <laughs> that's a real question. Even when you said the question, I thought you were going to ask if, what if the goat comes back to the camp? I think it's a good question. Hey, what happens, Modi? What happens if this goat comes back? What are we gonna do? <laughs> well, Aaron sends his sons and secretly kills it. I guess. <laughs> Didn't I tell you to not to come back? There was the, you know, the, they say that, the, of course, it's tradition, but when, remember when the ribbon wouldn't turn white? Mm -hmm. Well, that's actually recorded in the Talmud. So it's more, it's more than a tradition, Yvonne. It's a recorded event by a, by a text. Yeah. That, uh, that, that, yeah, there was a, sometimes the goat would atone and sometimes it would not, of one generation prior. Wasn't there something about the ribbon on the temple as well? On one There's of those. There's no ribbon on the temple. The ribbon's on the horn, horn of the goat. Oh, no, where was it that it didn't turn white? Was that? That's I guess, the one. The one. The scarlet wool would turn white. 
Uh, and you still have Orthodox Jews handing out scarlet wool as you head towards the temple, uh, still to this day, okay? Uh, constantly trying to give you something. Okay, uh, Shimshon from Nigeria, and then I'll make a few comments. All right. Um, I just want to, um, on that line, that, that question which uh, Mordecai just said, it's a very interesting question because when you look at it, if the goats to come back, it's 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 like mm -hmm. the same error that they are trying to avoid the high priest from doing. The high priest shouldn't have an error, so the we shouldn't have an error coming out in the in this in this operation. But the sages, um, I, I read in, in Rashi's comment concerning when it talks about the the goat for Azazel, it says the goat will be left standing alive. Why does it say standing alive? Because when you see it standing, then that means it must be alive. So um, that word standing alive means that it's going to be alive until the priest finishes all the um, liturgy for that session. And the person that takes it makes sure that it dies. And okay. that it's not going to come back, you know, either to the cliff or anything. I know, I know. I was just joking. Yeah, <laughs> of course it won't come back. Oh, I didn't know that. That's cool. Yeah. Now let's remember Rashi's a thousand years after the temple. So he's he's drawing on oral traditions, which is not recorded in the text. Right. It doesn't say it was killed, it just says it goes off into the sun into the sunset. Right. But Rashi's got, you know, the, the, there's multi as the question's been raised, what happens if this goat comes back? So people have been thinking about this and going, well, hang on a second. It's not it's not allowed to come back. Okay, we this is bad. Let's have a look at the text really carefully. And see if we can um, no uh, see if we can do something and uh, and um, and so you have the tradition that the goat would actually be taken to a, a place and Azazel became a place where you would then push the goat off a cliff okay so that it definitely didn't come back um, these are these are some of these are oral traditions and how, how many which ones are are the the correct one and which ones are, are just interpretation will remain to be seen but question is good what happens if the if the goat comes back um there is there is a few times in the new testament where things come back after they've been sent away and one of them neville and i were talking about this also a couple of uh, weeks ago of um uh a demon after he would been cleansed he goes and he journeys into the dry places yes and the dry places were the desert, which is like Azazel. Azazel's living in the desert. You know? the, the New Testament reflects this tradition that the demon wanders the dry places. And then he comes back. He came back with buddies. He came back with friends. You know, you don't want this goat to come back. It might come back with friends. It's got to it's gotta stay away. And, and also in the uh, oral tradition, which uh, it's in a, a midrash, the, the, the Jewish exegesis constantly says, what is the reward for a mitzvah? And, the, and what's the answer? Anyone know? What is the reward for actu actually doing? Doing another mitzvah. That's right. What is the reward for doing the will of the Lord? The opportunity to do the will of the Lord again. And then what's the, what is the reward of a sin? And another sin, probably. Correct. Yes. Sin breeds more sin. So they say... Uh, Mitzvah goreret mitzvah and avera goreret paleva. Uh, 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 a mitzvah will lead, a good deed will lead to another good deed. Obedience will lead to more obedience. And sin just leads to more sin. One, one abyss leads to another abyss. Yeah, right? yeah, one abyss, yeah, yeah. And the sort of idea that, uh, of that. But um, so 
so I have, I have a few comments now. So Aaron lays his hands on the head of the goat. No one sees him do this. He confesses over it all the iniquities of the people. What happens if the person at the edge of the camp doesn't care? Nothing. Yes. Isn't that interesting? Literally, according to the literal part of the text, nothing. It's got nothing to do with the, what the feeling, emotion, but we will get to that. There will be a Jewish commentary on, on, on this. And uh, looking at the time, this will definitely be next week's discussion, which will be Jewish commentary on the intention, the spiritual intention of what's going on with the literal part of the text. Um, Aaron doesn't say, I'm going to confess the sins of the people, but only if they actually repent. What's that guy doing over there? Is he actually repenting? I'm not, I'm not going to include him. No, it's, it's incredible what this high priest is doing. Okay. And uh, he, he confesses all the sins of the people and all of their transgressions and all of their sins, not some, not minor, total, and has nothing to do with them. There's nothing at this point in the text that says they got to do anything. They have to, later on, it will say that they will afflict themselves. Uh, and, then, and then he gives it to a man. So, so uh, eventually our high priest actually finally gets help. Okay, finally somebody else shows up and actually starts assisting in the ceremony. The moment he'd been doing it all himself. Uh, this man is unnamed. This man has been trained to do his job. He's not just stumped somebody. He's ready. He's, a, he's a, a fit for the task. And the goat will bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area, and he'll let the goat free in the wilderness with also those traditions that perhaps we ended up pushing him off a cliff. Okay. Um, uh, which is a, a interesting book. All right. Any comments on that? Aaron, I've got one question on that. It says here, and the and the scapegoat will be led away by a fit man into the wilderness. Is is that exactly what it says in Hebrew? A fit man. A timely man who had been prepared for this from the day before. Yeah. So it they, uses it uses a word for time. Vida, fit can mean suitable. suitable oh, su yeah. Okay, sorry. Yeah. Suit okay, thank you, thank you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So the, the implication is this guy has actually been prepared. He's been preparing for this. He's, he's actually, you know, he's, he's gearing up uh, for his task. Right? A fit man uh, would be unfair because there are some unfit Kohanim among us. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, that's. That's unfortunately the modern-day Pitter and Hummus uh, uh, addiction we all have, uh, much to our chagrin. Sorry, Lord. But, yeah, uh, the, uh, it's a, uh, the, the, the Hebrew there is, a, is an interesting time word. Okay? Somebody could see. He says, my ways are not your ways, and, uh, you know, the heaven and the earth, the distance, you know. Do you know why they get afflicted with, the, with Zara time? Uh, Aaron may be doing whatever he's doing on behalf of the, the people. And one of them is just there. He just doesn't care. And before you know it, maybe he will be afflicted with Zara. Uh, the, whatever Aaron is doing, he's doing for the people. But whoever that says he doesn't care uh, will have his own, will set his own score with Adonai. Okay. Yep. So, so, what, what you're doing is you're bringing in the other side of the story, right? So you've got the one side of the story where the atonement is actually 
there's no requirement. It's obviously for everyone and all of the sins are taken. And on the other hand, there is this sense of personal responsibility that can lead to Zarat, uh, which we've been talking about for the last uh, four chapters, five chapters of Leviticus, that there is this um, uh, thing that can occur and some of it can actually come from, from the Lord. So those two things will track together. Um, and that's the reason why when we get into Jewish exegesis and in obviously the continuation of uh, a lot of Christian exegesis, um, we look at the, the implications, the spiritual implications of what's going on and our responsibility. And we always must remember the Jewish rule. Whatever we say in the spirit must never go against the literal text. And so we always will have that as a basis that there is this high priest whom we don't see who offers for the sins of the entire world, the entire world. Now, that's a nice little phrase, regardless of what they're, they're saying. And then on the other hand, uh, how do people receive it? There's good thoughts, very good thoughts. Um, we'll continue on a little bit. We've got some time. Then Aaron shall go come into the tent of meeting, so he's back uh, after having done the uh, goat, which is uh, out the front of, in near the altar, and he'll take off his linen garments. Remember, he's been wearing humble clothing. He's been wearing, he hasn't been wearing his, his headband with the name of God on it. He hasn't been wearing his breastplate with the umim and thumim, the, uh, the, 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 the breastplate or any of his high, high stuff. He's been wearing what looks like everybody else and uh, very simple, very humble. And he takes that off and he puts them on uh, uh, in somewhere inside the tent. So uh, obviously an attendant might come along and, and watch them later. And then, and then, uh, then he uh, leaves them there, verse 24, and he shall bathe his body in water in a holy place. Doesn't exactly say where. Could be that there's a little mikveh um, been set aside very close to or inside the tabernacle somewhere. And, um, and then he puts on his garments. This is his now priestly uh, function, robes. That includes the headband, the urim, thurmi, and the breastplate. And he comes out and he offers a burnt offering for himself, for the people, to make atonement for himself and the people. And so the process is, continues again. Again, uh, another round of atonements, hence the plurality in the name. And the fat of the sin offering he shall burn on the altar. Remember from the previous things, somehow the Lord requires blood that belongs to him and also fat. Okay. And um, the, for all kinds of reasons, not always 100% sure, but it's the, it's the bit that is consumed um, for the Lord. Some of the other parts of the animal get, get to get eaten, uh, not these ones, but, but many others, but not the fat bit. And he who lets the goat go to Azazel, again, draw your attention to two weeks ago on a discussion on who or what uh, this Azazel is. And the guy who, who takes the goat, this one that's been prepared, the man uh, for the purpose, he'll get to also wash his clothes, bathe his body in water, and afterwards he can come into the camp. So his uh, cleanliness ritual actually occurs outside. Now, what did he do? That required him to be clean. Who? This this man, this man that takes away the goat. What did he do wrong? That requires him now to be clean before he can come inside the camp. 
he probably touched the goat. He probably hang out with the goat for some certain time. Yeah. You know, it took some time to take it to the Azazel, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And let's all be honest. Sorry, Aaron, the, the whole idea here is we're talking about uncleanness, right? Yep. So what is right, he must have become unclean even during that process. Yeah. For some reason. And, um, and it's not that he's sinned per se, but the taint, the stain uh, has, has, has come upon him and needs to be dealt with. And um, it's the same thing that happened in the Para Aduma and in the Red Efa when the cleansing of the temple or the purification of the temple. You know, anyone that even burns the, the ashes of the, of the Para Aduma becomes unclean. The one that's used the, para, the water of the Para Aduma to clean other people becomes unclean too. It's, so it's, a, it's, it's, it's strange that the man becomes unclean. I mean, he didn't do anything wrong, he did a good job. Yeah, that's true. Let's think about the what happens with Passover. Um, what do you have to do to the Passover lamb? You slaughter it and roast it. Yes. Now, once you've actually slaughtered it, what, eat the whole thing. Yeah. Yes, but once you actually have killed the lamb, in what state are you now? Oh, in an unclean state, literally. Correct, because you've now actually handled blood and a dead body. And so it's it's not that that uncleanness is a sin. But you, but you have to deal with it. And so here's this man. He's doing his job, doing his function, and uh, he just he just gets tainted. Um, so Aaron, following what you're saying, that's kind of cool because so I'm going to take the blood and I'm going to put it on the lintels and the doorposts, right? Yep. But I'm still in an unclean state and I'm still going to be protected. Yeah. While I was a sinner, Christ died for me. I'm in a state of uncleanness and the Lord is doing his job. And, so, so this uh, also applies to our, our salvation. We are saved, but we are being saved, literally. Literally, yes. And yes. Uh, so there's lot, lots of things to think about. So this man, he, uh, he then um, uh, has to do this function. And I don't see it as a, as a horrible thing. I see it as a, actually in its positive sense. You get to come back to the community. You've just taken the entire sins of the nation, right? Uh, and and you could be tainted, you know, all kinds of horrible things, but you get to come back. And that's actually sweet because, you know, many of us who work here, we get to see a lot of um, uh, people returning to the Lord for all kinds of reasons. And uh, no sin is too great. And it's a joy, actually, to welcome them back. Okay, Janet from Canada. No, it, it, just as you were saying, he gets to come back. It, it seems like there's a lovely connection here between the high priest and the people. You know, you have the Kohen Hagadol doing what he's doing on Yom Kippur, and then you have an unnamed person who, who really represents the whole of the community in a certain way by the task that he carries out. He, he's, he's given that job of, and all it says in my 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 translation is he he's a he's a man who who stands in readiness, and he, he he's sort of unnamed, but in a way, doesn't he really represent the whole of the community? And there's this wonderful link between what the high priest has done and what this man is being charged to do, or being he's taking it and then he comes back, and it's sort of like well, you have a high priest in the community in the sense that we have. Yeshua as a high priest, 
but we're also tasked with, um, we're connected to his work in the way that this man who takes the goat out is connected. It connects the whole of the community to what Aaron has just done. And as, and we're the sort of, if we think of it, that is, is that making sense? It's so powerful what you're saying. It's absolutely wonderful because it's so true. We are that we're dealing with sin around us daily. If we come to get back into the camp, we can wash through the word and through the blood and the Holy Spirit. We are being, you know, our feet are being washed and we have been washed by the word and we get to, to do this job. It's amazing. I agree with you. I mean, it's, it's, like, it's like God really, I, I think, and I'm just taking the text way off. I don't think he wanted the priest itself. The priest was separated from the people in order to do what he was going to do. But there was never a sense as, well, he's more important than every Joe who's in the community because you all have to have your sin forgiven. You're just given the position. And, and so, um, yeah, it, it's, like, it's, like, it's like God. God's never, <laughs> he, has, he has different levels of things that happen, but, but Aaron was just as capable of sinning as, as the guy in the camp who was supposed to be humbling himself that day. So we're not disconnected. That's all I'm trying to say. And it just again, this lovely picture of um, hopefully everybody in the camp was humbling themselves. So uh, maybe there's that expectation of, well, this goat is going to come through the camp. And as you say, Aaron, someone could say, well, I don't really care at all. And that's the same with salvation. Jesus died for the sins of all the world. And some people are very complacent and say, well, it doesn't matter. I don't believe in it. And those who do. And there's always going to be that. And before he died for the sins, he had to go through a road called Via Dolorosa today. So everybody saw him in the city. Right. He's been, that's right. He's been led out on this way of uh, this, this way that's very visual. Yeah. Okay. Good point. All right, guys, um, we, will, we will end it there. Next week, we will pick it up on the uh, spiritual side, the, the last couple of texts on the spiritual side of, um, and of Jewish exegesis and what we think is our responsibility in, with what our high priest is doing. And uh, can we just accept this free forgiveness? Um, and so I want you to have a look at the text. And I want you to think about some of these things that are that, and, and, uh, in, from verse 29 to 34. Um, it's interesting that it's also this is a Sabbath rest for the people. And for those that um, follow the Torah portion for this, uh, this week, this Torah portion is the first time the word Eidah is ever used to describe the people of Israel, which is a community. An Ada. And it's an Ada in connection with the Sabbath. Mm-hmm. It calls the it calls the Exodus 35, verse 1. It, the Lord says, You are an Adat Bene Israel. And, and in the very next sentence, he says, make sure you, you keep the Sabbath. You know, and it's in this connection. So thank you, Aaron. That was great. Okay. Andrew, you've got a, a hand raised before we finish. Yeah. Uh, right. Just thinking back to the chiastic structure that Simshon mentioned at this, before we started this book, although it feels it might actually be at the climax already, 
But I, I don't can't remember the structure. Are we approaching the climax still, or are we yep. at the climax? Leviticus 19. Once you get to Leviticus 19, you'll you'll begin to hear all these laws. You go, oh yeah, that's quoted in the New Testament. Oh yeah, that's that's the heart of uh, of the of the, the the will of God. Yeah, we're nearly there. <laughs> yeah, that's what I thought. But it, it almost feels like we're at the. Really is getting it, really is pushing it towards uh, the, the, the heart. And there's a lot of theology that's been um, pushed into this. It's a great book. All right, guys, blessings on whatever everybody is doing for the Sabbath. I do hope you all have a good rest. I'm looking forward to it. Thank you for listening. Our sermons and Bible studies are on all your favorite podcasting platforms. Spotify. Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and more. Sermons can also be found on YouTube. Follow us on Facebook for alerts on live streams. If you are blessed by these teachings, please prayerfully consider giving toward the work of Christchurch. Visit ChristchurchJerusalem.org. Blessings from the City of the Great King. <laughs>